Hello, welcome to Staycation. My name is Julia Weiser, and the concept of this podcast is that I look around my apartment and find an object to tell you a story about during this pandemic. And if you listen to my last couple of episodes, you'll know that I went into something I called the memory box, which is really just a giant, ugly blue Tupperware full of stuff that I've triaged many, many, many times over the years. It's stuff I want to keep from my past, but I don't want to display in my apartment. So I already decided I am going to display some of it. I decided to put my childhood books on my main bookshelf or get rid of them. I've done that. I've made room for them by getting rid of some other books. It feels good. I even have a little tiny bit of room on my shelf for for more fiction, specifically. Um, although if I weren't such a control freak about my bookshelf, I guess it could be room for anything. I would like more fiction, though. Generally, I don't keep fiction because um, I think I'm not going to reread it, and I think it should be out in the world. But I do have a list of books that I love that I will reread, and so I'm keeping my eye out for them in used bookstores. Not that I go to used bookstores very much these days, but normally I try to. In my normal life. Uh, Yeah, so hopefully I'll uh, acquire them, and they'll hang out on my shelf. So what else is in the memory box? Well, there were photos, journals, travel journals, um, old school photos, and then a bunch of school projects that I've whittled down to, I guess, things that I think are the most charming, really, that I want to keep. I think I did a pretty good job of it. There's enough there to make me smile when I'm 80, potentially. But there's not too, too, too much. Um, I guess I always loved reading and writing and words. And um, I got a lot of praise for my writing as a child. Um, my creative writing and otherwise. And creative writing is really hard for me now. I don't... I don't know what happened to my imagination. But um, going back to school, going to theater school at age 36 um, was really good for my imagination. So that was in 2017 that I started, and I'm gonna graduate very soon. I'm almost done, I'll be done in about a month, less than a month even. Uh, Yeah, it's been great for my imagination, but it's still, compared to other people, the stuff that I write is still very within the realm of realism. Um, But you know what, that's not surprising. Uh, actually, even my creative writing as a child was within the realm of realism, I think. 
um, in a general sort of sense. Yes, there were things that could not literally happen, but I wasn't inventing new worlds. I've always been very interested in the world in which I was living, and that's still true. I like to write plays um, based on true events, and I think I probably always will. Um, but every time I write a play, I sort of dare to make it more and more fictionalized and try and worry less and less about what the people that the story is based on will think about it or if they'll think that it's true to, to real events, as long as I'm honoring their experience. Um, I think that the play that I wrote about Creation 2, which is a real-life theater company that my parents were in in the 70s. I think it, it's a good play. You know, I had a lot of help um, from my friend and dramaturg, Kemi Fecto, and uh, we were going to put it on in 2020 at the Fringe Festival. And I think it would have been good. Um, but I do think it suffers a bit from being not quite documentary theater, but not quite fiction either. I think I was trying to please everybody and worry about what everyone and who I'd interviewed would think. You know, they think that that character is based on them. So I'm writing another play now, which you'll know if you listen to the episode of my podcast called Windy Earthworm. Uh, the writing's going really well. I don't write every day. That's not my process. Uh, it's sort of all comes out at once and then I stop and it just percolates in there in my brain and I feel like I'm procrastinating and I am but I'm also thinking about it sort of in, on the back burner. Um, so I have a draft and then draft two is going to be coming soon because it's due soon, April 15th. And today is April, what, 4th? Yeah. Nothing like a deadline to get me to do something. In fact, it's literally the only thing that can get me to do something, which does not bode well for my playwriting career when I'm done school, but we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. I'm sure there are groups I can join and uh, mm, other sorts of courses I could take. I'm sure I'll find something with external deadlines because internal deadlines I make for myself with, that have no consequences, I, I never, that, that doesn't work for me, unfortunately. So yeah, the point uh, I was trying to make about the play I'm writing right now about Windy Earthworm is that because I'm not thinking about producing it, um, because of the pandemic is why I'm not thinking about producing it, and I'm not thinking about directing it, I'm just wearing my playwriter's hat when I write it. And that allows me to be more imaginative and more creative. 
and also the process by which my teacher Jessica Carmichael teaches playwriting also encourages me to be more creative and imaginative. Um, I think it's a combination. And so I've stopped worrying about making it a documentary. It really isn't anymore. And as a result, I think it's going to be potentially, once it's gone through multiple, multiple drafts, I think it's potentially going to be better than anything else I've ever written. Um, it's really hard for me not to care about what people are going to think. I don't mean regular, ordinary people that I don't know. Although I do care about that as well in terms of, you know, when Kemi and I put on um, a play in 2019 at Fringe Festival, I cared what the audience thought, of course. Um, but I have a lot of stories to write, to tell about my family, and I worry what they're going to think. And that's held me back for years from telling my own story. Um, and I just can't keep living like that, you know? It's not conducive to creating art. So yeah, I'm trying to liberate myself from that. Wish me luck. Um, so I thought I'd read you some of the things that I wrote as a child. I'm curating it, obviously. You're gonna hear a lot of turning page noises. Uh, but I hope you'll enjoy it. I'm enjoying it. There is something I can't quite bring myself to read in its entirety because it's just too mortifying. Although I did put the cover art on Instagram recently. Uh, if you want to follow me on Instagram, it's at Julia Rose Weiser. And uh, I'm having some doubts now about whether or not there are um, not hyphens. What's the word? Oh my god. Underscores? Oh Jesus. <sighs> oh, there aren't either of those things. It's Julia dot Rose R O S E dot Weiser W E I S S E R. That's my Instagram. There's not a lot going on there at the moment. Um, although I do have a lot of stories, you can check those out. In terms of actual posts, there's not a lot happening. Um, I do have an Instagram for my theater company, Humanly Possible Productions. The Instagram is at humanly underscore possible underscore MTL. But there's literally nothing happening there. Not my fault. I know people are getting excited about theater coming back to Montreal and the premiere allowing theaters to open again, and I want to be excited, but I'm not yet. I guess that's partially just depression. 
or not wanting to get excited about something and then it have it taken away from me, I think, is part of it as well. You know, just because the Premier of Quebec said theatres can reopen doesn't mean he won't say tomorrow that they can close. Uh, so that's really taking away from my excitement and optimism. But the people who are being excited and optimistic about theater in Montreal, God bless, you know? You're doing the Lord's work. So, okay, um, I'm gonna read you a couple poems that I wrote in uh, 1992 when I was 11. Um, there's a collection of poems. I'm just going to read you some of them. Uh, I wrote this at Christmas. This is a Christmas poem called Wrapping Presents. I spelled wrapping wrong. I spelled it wrapping like a rap song. But as far as I can tell, that's my only spelling mistake. So go 11-year-old me. Uh, so this is an example of what I meant by within the realm of realism, but not actually realistic. Okay, wrapping presents. I tried to wrap my presents, for Christmas Eve was coming soon, and Uncle Bob in Calgary needed this book on hot air balloons. But the tape was running out, and Dad said not to waste it, so I only used a little bit, which didn't seem to help it. For ribbon can't be tied well when there's only one person to tie it, and ribbon can't be taped well when there's only two inches to tape with. So, my dear Uncle Bob in Calgary received in less than a week an unwrapped present from you-know-who. I feel like such a geek. Not bad, eh? So you see, I don't actually have a uh, Uncle Bob in Calgary. But my dad is really stingy with tape. Yeah, that part's true. Uh, let's see. I was really interested, I can see now, in um, alternative explanations for things. I was interested in how things were invented and coming up with fanciful alternatives. Oh, I didn't finish my thought from before. I got distracted telling you about my Instagram where nothing is happening. Not really selling it. Oh yeah, so I do have this story that I can't quite bring myself to read all of it. It's just too embarrassing. Um, it's laminated, like it's bound like a real book. It's really long. Um, I wrote it when I was nine. It's called The Mission of Man's Best Friend. Features a group of dogs. And um, what was happening when I was nine was uh, the Gulf War. So... Clearly, that influenced 
my everyday life in some way because I decided to write a long, long, long story about a group of dogs who saved the Kuwaitis from Saddam Hussein. And I just, I love the art. I love like my drawings of the dogs. I love my terrible drawings of people. Um, there's just something about the earnestness of this and the tone deaf, you know, attitudes of a North American centric white child towards what was going on in the Middle East that I just can't bring myself to read all the way through. I, I, I will. I have to at some point. Um, I don't think that's going to be today. If I can, though, I will read you a bit of it. If I can get through the mortification. But here's another poem from 1992. It's called uh, Mr. Micro. <clears throat> Who discovered microwaves and all those TV dinners? Who discovered light popcorn that's supposed to make you thinner? And all of those foods we can now heat up in only a matter of seconds. Why, Mr. Micro made it up when the family's dinner threatened not to be ready on time. Mr. Micro made a mental note while every single day he and Mrs. Micro cooked while the little ones played. And when the kids got back, they were starving beyond words, and they were always asking when dinner would be served. Mr. Micro bore in mind his poor and starving kids and decided something had to be done to make dinner in a whiz. So after a lot of tinkering and fitting in his shop, Mr. Micro came up with the oven to make things hot. For a while, the kids were happy about the invention that was found, but soon they found the pizza soggy and the broccoli was brown. Mr. Micro knew this was true, and though the machine was fast, the food that it was produced was certainly not the best. But Mr. Micro couldn't fix this little problem, so in all his fury and his rage, he threw it out the window. A man who built big ovens found the little lonely machine. He took it home and found that it perfectly cooked his beans. Not noticing they were soggy, he took the oven to the store and business started booming from day one to 94. Mr. Micro had left his name on the bottom of the oven so it soon became the microwave, though Mr. Micro knew nothing of it. Mr. Micro's gone now, though his children still remain, and they're trying to see if their family can invent something great again. That, <laughs> that's the poem. I'm really proud of that one. Uh, microwaves do suck. I don't have one right now. Um... I don't actually have the counter space. Like, yes, I technically have the counter space, but what I'm telling you is that I'd rather put something else there. And I'd rather have enough free space on the counter that cooking is a pleasure. Because I've started cooking regularly for the first time in my life and I want it to be easy. 
So aside from a toaster, I don't really have a lot of stuff. And it's okay not having a microwave right now because, uh, well, for one thing, I'm not in any kind of a fucking hurry. Uh, that's for sure. Don't, don't need to zap my stuff fast. And also, I have a smallish oven and it heats up really, really, really quickly. You don't even have to preheat it. Um, so heating up my leftovers really isn't a problem. Yes, eventually I will get a microwave again. Um, but yeah, I definitely like that poem. So here's a short story in the vein of the poem, Mr. Micro. It's called Where Do Candy Canes Come From? I don't remember writing this one. It doesn't ring any bells, which is funny because um, the actual story, the actual paper is in the shape of a bell. Um, I imagine the teacher cut these out around Christmas time and gave them all to us and just let us write a, whatever kind of Christmas story we wanted. There's no date and there's no context clues. So I think I was probably around nine, eight or nine. Yeah. Just sort of looking at my writing and my spelling. Yeah. Okay, where do candy canes come from? This is the story of a boy named Tommy and his dog Jappy and how they find out where candy canes come from. One day, Tommy asked his mother where candy canes come from. His mother said they came from a factory. His dad said the same thing. Well, I think they come from somewhere else, said Tommy to Jappy. Tomorrow is Saturday, so we can go to town and find out where candy canes really come from. The next day, Tommy asked if he and Jappy could go out and go to the park. Okay, but be back by five, said his mother. Good, it is now two o'clock, so we have three hours, said Tommy. Tommy got on his coat and put the leash on Jappy. When they got outside, they went to the park. Look for clues, Tommy said to Jappy. Jappy sniffed the ground until he found something and barked. Tommy came over to see what it was, but it was just a bag. Not a very good clue, said Tommy. But wait a minute. Candy canes sometimes come in bags, said Tommy. Maybe it is a good clue. I'll put it in my pocket. Hey, look, it's the Santa Claus parade, said Tommy. Just then a float with clowns on it came by. Then the clowns started to throw candy. Some of the candy was candy canes. Most of the candy canes were broken, but Tommy picked up one that was only broken in two pieces. Now this is a clue, he said. Hey, look, on the candy cane, it has the letters R-E-D on it. That spells red. Oh, sure, the candy cane had some red on it, but everybody knows that, said Tommy. Hey, maybe the person who made the candy cane is named Red. Tommy took out the bag Jappy found in the park. This bag says M-O-R-T on it in the corner. Maybe the person who made the candy cane had someone else make the bag. It all makes sense now. Let's go to my uncle's farm and ask them where they come from. They walked for a long time until they came to Tommy's Uncle Fred's house. Hi, Tommy, said Fred. And just what do you want? 
I want to know where candy canes come from, said Tommy. Well, you just come with me and I'll show you where they come from, said Fred. Fred took Tommy and Jaffy to the barn. There they saw chickens laying eggs shaped like candy canes. All of a sudden, an egg hatched, and out came a little candy cane. Tommy took it from the nest. Then he looked at all the chickens' names that were on little pieces of paper in front of every nest. Finally, he found red. But all the chickens on the other side of the barn laid bags. He looked at all the chickens until he found Mort. And that were, that's where candy canes come from, said Fred, when he drove Tommy and Jappy home. The end. And there's a, a very nice picture of Fred, uh, Tommy and Jappy. Jappy's on a leash. Um, and then we have some chickens named Rudy, Red, and Bonnie. And they are laying candy canes. And then on the other side of the page, we have some chickens named Maggie, Joker, and Mort. And they are laying uh, what I presume must be plastic bags, but really just look like ugly squiggles. So yeah, um, that seems plausible, right? I can't believe I have no memory of that, of writing that. It's pretty good. Okay, so here's another poem. It's not very long. It's from 1992. It's called Ode to a Pumpkin. <clears throat> Next time that Halloween rolls around and you go by the pumpkin you'll carve, stop to think if you were the pumpkin and you were about to be carved. And then, just to make you feel worse, your insides were made into pie and kids started eating your seeds. Wouldn't you just want to die? And then they display you outside for all the world to see. And a club of gangsters comes and smashes you into a tree. This would be something to think about and something you all should know. This would be important if pumpkins had feelings. They don't. The end. Uh, here are some very short poems about food I wrote in grade eight when I was 13. Some are better than others. It's called A Collection of Food Poems uh, with little illustrations. Timbits. Timbits are donuts, but not the whole nut. Chicken fingers. Chicken fingers used to be a chicken running wild and free. And when they sit upon, upon your plate, they look at you with morbid hate. Hamburgers. Hamburgers are accompanied by mustard, ketchup, and dill weed, and yet I think they taste the best with just a bun and not the rest. Nectarines. The value of a nectarine still remains to be seen. It's nothing special to eat because it's like a peach without the fuzz. Toast. The maker of toast has no reason to boast. Now I'm going to read you some nonfiction from 1990. So, yeah, when I was nine. Uh, the teacher gave me like a little booklet with prompts at the top 
the prompts were what makes people dull, what makes people poor or rich, is it good to be perfect, what is meant by too old to have fun, what does it mean to love life, are you a different person when you're with somebody else, good question, and what do you admire about your friends. So I'm just going to read to you what does it mean to love life according to nine-year-old Julia. If you love life, you like the beauty of nature, and you enjoy the life around you and don't want to harm the environment. It can also mean you think you have a perfect life and that you don't have to do your work, even though you do. My dad always says, even if you don't like to do some things that you have to do, try to find something good in it, or else you're just going to spend the rest of your life complaining about it. He also said while we were eating dinner in our dining room the other day that if he didn't do things he didn't like, I wouldn't be in this house. I would be out on the streets. It just goes to show you, get right out there and find something you like in everything. Uh, I've reread this before uh, when I was triaging a few years ago. And it was such an aha moment for me. I was like, oh, I wonder where I got the idea that work is something you hate. That your vocation is something you choose that you're not actually enjoying. Uh, yeah. I mean, my father was a minister. And then I became a social worker. And what is a social worker? except a minister without the Jesus part. Social workers have better boundaries. They don't give their phone numbers out to clients. They have an easier time leaving their work at work than a minister does. But still, it's the same fucking thing. And he didn't like doing that, and I don't like doing that either. Uh, but there were bits of it that we were each well-suited to but we didn't like it. Why? Because my father is an artist at heart and I'm an artist at heart. But I had no examples in my family of people who did art for a living. It was like, oh no, we couldn't possibly do that. Um, my dad wouldn't even call himself an artist. He's been painting watercolors for 40 years or 50 years. And I think he would call himself an artist now. But the whole time he was doing it, he wouldn't call himself that. And, um, you know, anyone who did put their art front and center in my family was derided for it. It's like, oh, you can have that, but like on the side. Um, my father didn't have very good boundaries with me in terms of where he stopped and where I began. And it didn't help that we were extremely similar in personality, and we still are. Uh, he's more extroverted than I am. If I have to talk to make small talk, I channel my inner Lance. But otherwise, we're like the same fucking person, and that doesn't help. But, um, yeah, he would just sort of, um, 
instead of making suggestions of things, he would just tell me things that I should do or be interested in. Uh, I liked collecting things as a child a lot. Some of the th those were things that a person can actually collect legitimately, like Garfield figurines or, um, I don't know, CDs later in life by a particular artist. I wanted to get have them all. Uh, bookmarks I collected. But a lot of the things I collected are not actual collections. Uh, as my friend Kat pointed out, that's just hoarding. <laughs> I'd be like, oh, I have a collection of toilet paper rolls and, and rocks and uh, pen caps. And it's like, no, that's not a collection. Uh, but my dad, one day, he told me, you're going to collect holograms. And he gave me a bunch of hologram stuff. And he was like, this is the future. <laughs> And I didn't see a difference between he and I either. So I couldn't actually tell if I was interested in that because it was never a question. I wasn't interested in it, by the way, and I don't have those anymore. Um, but yeah, anyway. That's some, uh, some nonfiction. I have a bit more nonfiction to redo that is just as revealing. There's no date on this, but there are some context clues. I would say I was 11 when I wrote this. It's typed. Um, yeah. So I can't look at my handwriting, but yeah, I'm pretty sure I was 11. Okay, this is called, it's not much, but we call it our house on a typical Saturday. So clearly the teacher asked me to write what happens in my house on a typical Saturday. In the mornings, I usually wake up around eight o'clock. I then lie in, in bed pondering the meaning of life, haha, <laughs> and sometimes wishing I were a goldfish so I wouldn't have so many problems. I do this for about 15 minutes and then remember I have a whole pile of books I got out of the library. And if only my bed weren't so comfortable, I could get up and grab one. I usually end up dragging myself out of bed, and then I read for a little more than an hour. Let's say that at 11.30, I have a rehearsal for a play I'm in. Mom and Dad have gotten up around 7 or so, and Dad might be at the church or working at our computer upstairs. I'll have a bowl of cereal for breakfast, all the while reading my library book. Even when I'm finished my cereal, nothing can make me put down that book. Unless, of course, Mom says it's 10.30 and I'm not dressed for the weather, my teeth and hair are not brushed, and that she might get rid of all my books since I'm hardly ever on time. Parentheses. Don't get me wrong, she only says all this when she's rather ticked off. So now I have 15 minutes to get all ready, get my costumes and the rest of my junk, and still have time to make lunch to bring with me and finish the chapter of my book. Mom should at least be glad I like reading instead of being addicted to TV or Nintendo. While I'm trying to wing it at rehearsal, the infamous Reverend Lance Weiser is working on the sermon for Sunday, or maybe visiting an old lady in the hospital. Parentheses. I don't know how he has time for everything a minister has to do. I don't think I could handle it. 
Mom, or so she tells me, is either shopping or cleaning. I told her that didn't sound very exciting, and she agreed with me. You may not think my rehearsal is very exciting either, but things start to get interesting when our two directors, Claude and Margaret, get out the whipped cream from the cupboard. Anybody who doesn't smile gets a large dose of it right in the smacker. And if you move, you might end up with it all over your shirt. I discovered one Saturday afternoon that I actually like whipped cream, something I'd never known before. I guess you learn something new every day. The rehearsal usually goes till three, which is when my mother comes to pick me up. Between then and supper time, I read and try to finish my weekend homework. I also walk the dog and I might go visit our pet rabbits who live outside. We eat supper between 5.30 and 6. My dad is a really good cook and he always finds a delicious way to cook meat and all the rest of our dinner. The only thing I can remember he's failed at making is a decent salad. Both dad and I love meat. I can't even think about going through life as a vegetarian. Mom likes meat too, but she's more of a vegetable person. Tonight, for example, dad was tired and hadn't made anything for supper. I was afraid we were going to have to finish up that pasta thing in the fridge for more than a week ago. But mom volunteered to make a salad plate for each of us. Dad immediately said he was still stuffed from lunch and went up to work on the computer. But I couldn't imagine not eating supper and went along with the salad bit. Mom, I discovered, has a unique ability to make even salad taste good. It was arranged nicely on two little plates, one for each of us, and had tuna, lettuce, green beans, carrots, egg, and green pepper in it. When Dad came down and saw them, he said he would like one, and was it too late? Mom said it wasn't, and fixed another one for him. I must admit, it was delicious. After supper, if we're not busy, all three of us play a game or two of cards. Then we all usually have things to do, namely work. Mom is one of the staff at the Victoria Volunteer Bureau and is also volunteering to train volunteers for the Commonwealth Games. She usually has stuff to do for that. I have homework. Dad, if he's all finished his work for the day, might go for a walk or take a book he's reading to the park. He told me once, she, once he enjoys reading more when he's outside. I go to bed around 9.30, but usually read until 10. By now, I've finished the book I started in the morning, and I'm probably working on another one. Mom says she and Dad go to bed around 10.30 or 11, but I can't help wondering if they stay up to watch Saturday's late, late, late movie. Probably not. I've seen Dad watching old Saturday Night Live movies he's taped. Still, I've learned that you never can tell with parents. The end. Wow. There's a lot of information in there. Uh, first of all, me being addicted to books is like, it's like the old millennials version of being addicted to the phone or the internet. It's like, put that thing down and talk to me. Pretty funny. Uh, I have no memory of Claude and Margaret who ran my, um, theater school for young people in Victoria. I have no memory of them whip creaming us when they when we didn't smile. Uh, they were a little weird. My parents didn't actually think they were great drama teachers, but there weren't a lot of options in Victoria. There were two options, in fact. And I 
basically did both of them. Um, also hilarious that I said I could never be a vegetarian because I became one four years later and then stayed a vegetarian for 15 years out of sheer stubbornness because I didn't like it when people said it was a phase. Because, fair enough, people are always telling teenage girls that the thing they're doing is a phase. But, like, wow. To do something for 15 years to prove a point, that's impressive. Um, I do really like vegetables now, though. And meat. Meat's fucking delicious. Um, also... I like the last line, you never can tell with parents, because, uh, yeah, my dad was a closeted gay man that whole time, so I guess you really can't tell with parents. So now we're going to go forward in time a bit to 1999. So I guess I was 18 in 1999. I read the Globe and Mail every Saturday. And um, there was a like a challenge every week. I don't know what the nature of the challenge was, if it was always poetry. I don't think so. So this one was devise a haiku, which is three unrhymed lines with five, seven, and five syllables respectively in which U.S. President Bill Clinton might make his feelings known, of contrition or otherwise. The winner is Julia Weiser of Toronto. That's me. So this is my Bill Clinton haiku. If you're a Gen Z, this probably isn't funny to you. Sorry. I guess not everything's about you. No, <laughs> sorry, that was rude. Uh, anyway. Here's the haiku. My impeachment woes may pale in light of this fact. The blue dress was mine. Not bad, eh? I won, uh, what did I win? I won a English grammar book. Yeah. Fun. Completely unnecessary now. We just have something called the internet. If we want to... Check our grammar. Uh, let's see if there are any other good ones here. They print all the runners up, too. Um, I wish I wish I'd never known that a thong was other than a shoe. Life's not at all fair. The most potent man on earth gets no sex at all. If I did a wrong, I will drown myself, I swear, in my typing pool. Care for my privates is my sworn duty as their commander-in-chief. Oh, I like that one. Hoping she might be able to forget the past, I sent the present. Yeah, I like that too. Yet they believed Jack when he said his sore back was due to overwork. I don't know who Jack is. Probably President Kennedy. Forgive and forget? How about two out of three? Should have pepper sprayed. Go, Monica, go. Monica, stop. Monica, 
Monica, please go. This soap opera has taken up too much time, time with a capital T, and also Newsweek. Okay, so it said what the next week's challenge was. The next week's challenge was suggest a far-fetched excuse for losing a famous book that somehow relates to its content or its title. For example, I think I foolishly gave away my King Lear, or I swear my cat ate the complete mouse. Okay, so no, they're not poems or haiku. And I never did, I, I never did another one ever again. Um, Monica Lewinsky got a really raw deal in all of that. That's the understatement of the year. Um, in my first episode, I told you about other podcasts I like. I really like the podcast You're Wrong About. It's my favorite. Check it out. They do a po an, an episode about Monica Lewinsky. And another, I think, separate episode about the Bill Clinton impeachment situation. Um, and all kinds of things that happened in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s that people my age sort of remember, but not very well. They go back and go over it with a fine-tooth comb and tell you what really happened. They are freelance journalists. One of them is my age. One of them is about five years younger than me. They're amazing hosts. Um, I want to meet them so bad. It's just so good. And I really need stuff like that during this pandemic. I really need podcasts. Um, I'm doing this thing for April where I don't watch anything. Like, I don't watch any movies or TV. Um, I don't even really know why. I guess I just like to give myself little challenges sometimes. I'm hoping I'll read more books. But yeah, podcasts. Podcasts are where it's at. Okay, so thank you for humoring me. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the trip down my memory lane. <laughs> if not, don't worry. That's uh, probably the only podcast episode where I will read you things I wrote as a child. I can't guarantee that, but probably. So if it wasn't your thing, don't worry. The next one will be completely different. Maybe. Bye.